Yep, 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 yep. We good? We're good now. Stuff Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Theo Mojanet to talk about his latest research piece on the development of Bitcoin money market funds. He wrote this piece for Axiom BTC and is currently looking for a job as a researcher focusing on Bitcoin. Uh, I think if you listen to this conversation, you'll be thoroughly impressed. And if you're out there, uh, looking to hire research analysts. Theo is probably one of the top guys out there. Fascinating conversation. Made me extremely bullish. You guys are going to like it. Uh, we have to read the top three boosts. We only have three boosts so far. We released episode 448 this morning. Opt out of Keynesian brain rot with Godfrey Bloom. Very high octane rip here. Um, and since we just released it a few hours ago, we only have three boosts at blockchain bug. 25,000 sats. True sayers, we need more of this. Thanks, great guest. Thank you, Blockchain Bug, and I agree. It was a great guest. At Dugan Droop, 625 sats. Great rip, but show me the car sales room that will accept your bar of gold, Godfrey. I tried selling a gold coin once, took it to London, dropped it in a Starbucks, ended up bringing it home again. Bloody pain in the arse. Um, it's hard to sell gold, it is. There's more, I, I, I think you guys need to show some, um, what's the word I'm looking Grace. Not, no, not grace. I mean, if you listen to the episode with Godfrey, like he was pretty open. Like, I want Bitcoin to succeed. We just need more merchant adoption, which is coming. At MCOT, 322 sats, we're going to make it. Many people globally are aware of the monetary problems. The word continues to spread. Thank you both for your continued efforts to get the message out. Cheers, emoji. Cheers to you at MCOT. Appreciate you guys boosting this. If you're not participating in the value for value model we have here with Podcasting 2.0 by listening uh, via Podcasting 2.0 compatible apps like Fountain, uh, consider it. Uh, if not, if you want to provide value to the show, if you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Fountain, wherever you're listening, give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps us get more exposure. And as MCOT said there, we're trying to get the word out about Bitcoin and solutions, actionable advice in the digital age. Uh, so thank you, you freaks, for boosting. Thank you for supporting the show, whether you're doing that via podcasting 2.0 or simply giving us a subscribe and a five-star rating and a review. We appreciate you. We also appreciate our sponsors. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at River. River is here to provide you the best Bitcoin-only exchange in the world. Uh, you can DCA into Bitcoin with no fees and tight spreads. Other exchanges have fees and wider spreads. River has really worked hard to provide you an experience where you don't have to pay if you DCA uh, for each buy and you get the tightest spreads in the industry. Uh, they build their own infrastructure. They don't have any third-party dependencies like Prime Trust or Fortress. They built their own wallets, their own libraries. Uh, your Bitcoin is backed one-to-one, 100% -one, in reserve in multi-sig cold storage if you hold Bitcoin on the exchange. But River doesn't want you to hold Bitcoin on the exchange, and that's why they've launched their auto withdrawal feature. So you can stack, you can DCA on River, and after a certain threshold, uh, River will auto withdraw to an address that you put in the app. They have customer service. You can pick up a phone and call them, and they will answer and answer any questions you may have. Uh, it's truly an incredible experience. Go to river.com slash TFTC, set up an account today and get $5 worth of Bitcoin. That's river.com slash TFTC. This rip was also brought to you by good friends down the hall. Unchained, they're doing it right as well. 
They're leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to bring you the financial platform of the future, a future on a Bitcoin standard. They have their Vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig where you hold two keys, Unchain holds one. That's a collaborative custody model uh, where if you ever need Unchain to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they can be there to sign for you. They are there to sign for you. They have their lending desk, which allows you to put Bitcoin up as collateral to get USD liquidity so you don't have to sell your Bitcoin and take on the tax event. You have one key in that two or three multi-sig quorum, that escrow wallet where the Bitcoin's held. So you have visibility knowing that your Bitcoin's not being rehypothecated. They have an IRA product that allows you to hold your keys in your IRA. Again, another two or three multi-sig where you hold two keys so you can transition your IRA into Bitcoin and hold your own keys in a self-sovereign way. They've really improved the onboarding process for the IRA products specifically. So set up a consultation with their team. Go to unchained.com slash consultation. Set up a consultation. You don't have to ape into any of their products. Just learn about what they're building, why they're building it, how they're building it to get a better understanding, to get more comfortable with the services that Unchained offers. Unchained.com slash consultation. Tell them that TFTC sent you. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by Bitcoin Talent Co. If you're in the space, maybe you're a research analyst looking for a job, maybe you're a company looking to hire talent, reach out to Bitcoin Talent Co., Uh, It's a seasoned team of headhunters and recruiters that understand Bitcoin. So they're going to understand your needs as a company and as uh, an applicant looking to get into the space. They have a flex product. Uh, Maybe you're not looking to hire full time right now, but you need quick sprints on the engineering side, on the design side, on the growth marketing side. Bitcoin Talent Co. is building out a flex roster that allow you to tap into uh, a roster of contract workers who are available to do these quick sprints so you don't have to take on the burden, the financial burden, most importantly, of hiring a full-time employee and providing all the benefits and everything else on top of that. Um, yeah, go check out Bitcoin Talent Co. BitcoinTalent.co. Tell them the TFTC's, TFTC sent you and enjoy this rip with Theo Mojene. Hey. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Theo. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm very excited for this conversation. I think this is a very interesting topic. I was just explaining to you before we hit record, but I think uh, diving into the piece that you wrote for Axiom is going to be very fascinating because I do think uh, this type of financialization of Bitcoin and doing it in a Bitcoin native way is something that's going to become more prominent as we move forward. But before we dive into uh, the paper you wrote, Orange is the New Green, the Emergence of Bitcoin Money Market Funds, why don't you explain a little bit about yourself, how you found Bitcoin, uh, and why you decided to write this particular research paper? Yeah. Um, so I was trained as a data scientist, um, and it's in that capacity that I first learned about blockchain originally. 
um, basically solving a technical problem for my employer. And um, I jumped into the bandwagon uh, during the 2016-2017 bull run. At the time, not really understanding what I was doing, I understood uh, Bitcoin like really superficially on a technical level. And then a um, couple months later, I was um, uh, in vacation in Japan and I lost uh, my wallet. And I was faced with um, a really simple problem is that um, Japan is a really expensive country. I was staying there for um, three weeks more and I didn't have any cash. I didn't, I lost my credit card. So I had to phone the uh, credit card company to find a solution. And they basically told me that either they would send me a Western Union um, up to $1,000, which is really little to spend three weeks in Japan. And it would cost me like something like $150 or they would ship me a new credit card uh, and it would take five days. But um, I have no solution to manage uh, uh, the cost of living in the meantime. And I remembered I had uh, Bitcoin. I was in the tech capital uh, um, in Southeast Asia, basically. And so I figured I could find a way to exchange Bitcoin for cash. So um, I just find a, found a Bitcoin ATM, um, get in, got in touch with the guy managing the, the, the ATM and decided to do a peer-to-peer -peer exchange for uh, physical yen um, enough to cover all my expenses for three weeks and then it, it basically hits me um, uh, in a really practical way that uh, it was the best way to send value across the globe and then uh, it's basically at that moment that I decided to do delve more into the subject and uh, try to learn anything I could find about it I was not properly trained in finance and economics. So uh, it's at that time that I entered this rabbit hole, um, discovering the Austrians. At the same time, the Bitcoin standards uh, was released. Uh, I was totally uh, convinced by Safety Thesis, then joined uh, his online academy as an early member. And yeah, and so for the past four years, I've been an independent consultant. Um, basically helping my uh, clients to under better understand Bitcoin, develop products um, around this. And um, I'm currently stopping that to look, I am, I'm looking for a job doing research um, in the industry. Um, yeah, that's about it. Well, if this paper is indicative of the quality of the research that you do, I don't think it'll be very hard for you to find a job in the industry. Um, which provides us a good jumping off point to jump into it. Uh, the concept of Bitcoin emerging as a new type of money market fund or money market funds that are native to Bitcoin emerging. Uh, and really what this type of product would do is solve the trade-off that many Bitcoiners face right now. They like Bitcoin, the asset, the hard asset, the fact that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, that it's a great long-term store of value uh and for those who want to go uh, get off or get on zero excuse me and live encapsulated under a full bitcoin standard individually they run into this problem of the volatility which doesn't make it uh, very viable 
if you want to hold short-term cash balances, uh, the volatility can make, uh, can introduce a lot of uncertainty if you're trying to pay bills or do things, whether you're an individual or a company alike. And so the concept of a money market fund uh, natively on Bitcoin can sort of help solve this particular problem. Um, before we dive into the dynamics of how you would actually build this on Bitcoin, I think it's important to understand how money market funds work in the incumbent financial system, why they exist, and why they're becoming more popular right now uh, in this high interest rate environment. So before we dive into Bitcoin, I guess let's explain the the nature and the landscape of the money market fund solutions that exist today and competing products that individuals and companies use depending on where the market is at any given point in time. Yeah, sure. Uh, so basically, uh, a money market fund is a, a piggy bank for financial institutions. Um, many funds and other kind of financial institutions uh, basically don't like uh, depositing large sums of money uh, into a bank. First, because there is a counterparty risk, and second, um, because it's most of the time it yields uh, lower rates than what you could get um, at um, the left end of the yield curve, so with short-term rates. And so a money market fund is a really simple fund in which uh, the fund manager will hold short-term dated um, securities, usually treasury bills with really low maturity, like three months, six months bills. And it will issue shares on demand against those assets. So it's not fractionally reserved. It's just like a simple balance sheet with, on the asset side, a lot of short-term dated securities. And because they are short uh, term, they don't uh, have the downside effects of uh, suffering losses when there are uh, rate, hike, uh, rate hikes like now because there is basically no duration effect. So if, for example, you hold 20-year uh, bonds uh, right now, you have suffered a lot of losses because uh, with a new bond issuance, I higher rates than um, existing bonds. Um, so future cash flows you will get are um, rapidly depreciating in value. But with short-term bonds, you can just help them to maturity because it's only like three months or six months. And so the, the value of the bonds doesn't fluctuate much. And so it gives um, a, a good place for financial institutions to store cash balance on a short-term basis until they need this cash uh, and deploy it in whatever assets uh, um, they choose. And currently, with the rate hikes, uh, your typical money market fund would yield something like for 5.5% on an annualized basis, which is more than you would get uh, holding any kind of uh, fixed income uh, securities with the same level of risk as it is assessed uh, in the traditional financial world. And it's way more than you would get uh, we, um, at a deposit account in a traditional bank. So um, over the past 18 months, something like that, um, a lot of capital has poured um, into money market funds. And um, yeah, 
interest for them has grown. And we also witness the emergence of with new fintech coming in of like consumer solutions that will allow you to you as an individual as retail to put um, some of your capital in this uh, with basically to click through an app. And so, yeah, uh, the current, basically the current macro environment um, makes it an attractive proposition. And historically, it's also has been a piggy bank for uh, financial institutions. So they have always been quite large uh, in terms of uh, assets under management. Yeah. And really diving into the concept of duration mismatch, which you touched on a bit, I think in the paper you highlight a really important example of that, which is the UK guilt markets uh, earlier this year, late last year, where they had their, it was earlier this year, time flies, um, where they had their duration mismatch and almost took the whole uh, UK pension system under. And so I think to highlight the problems in a high interest rate environment and what led to the, the turmoil in the guilt markets would be uh, worthwhile to jump into as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I think it was yeah late last year. Um, so basically, um, new government uh, in England, uh, in the UK, excuse me, um, put forward a new budget uh, with a lot of tax cuts. So um, it worried uh, fixed income investors. So they decided to sell a lot of bonds. And then uh, it triggered a kind of uh, reflex reflex reflexive events, whereby um, a lot of uh, bonds were sold. And um, um, I must mention that uh, a lot of the pension institutions in the UK used this kind of bonds, so long-term gills, um, as collateral to fund their operations through schemes called LDI. And so when the rates uh, skyrocketed, uh, it uh, collapsed the value of the bonds. And because they have pledged so much of those bonds uh, as collateral, they faced margin calls. Uh, so basically, their lenders uh, told them, yeah, your collateral value is depreciating. Uh, we need you to post more collateral uh, in order for us to um, keep the loans going. And um, the problem was that most of their books is also comprised of uh, long-term gills. And so they had to sell uh, more gills uh, at a moment where the value was already depreciating fastly. Um, and to raise cash in order to meet their margin requirements. And so it created this kind of uh, feedback loop whereby um, lower guild prices led to lower guild prices and rendered uh, the guild markets uh, illiquid because most of the institutions that were used to buy those guilds were all selling at the same time. And so um, the market uh, teasered on the brink of collapse and then the Bank of England uh, stepped in and bought a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of those deals to backstop uh, the market drawdown, mostly because um, not doing so would have been a, um, a 
basically uh, horrible for the pension industry and would have wiped out a lot of British savings because uh, most of people's retirements uh, are managed by those funds. And so um, basically uh, it, they, they were at the risk of collapse. And the, the important thing I think here to understand is that um, we have had this kind of financial orthodoxy for the past 40 years that um, government securities are the, more, the most liquid instruments. So um, most financial institutions, uh, whereas it is banks or other financial institutions, use that as collateral to fund their daily operations. But um, since uh, the COVID episodes and uh, inflation taking back, uh, banks and uh, central banks around the world decided to uh, hike rates, which um, depreciates the market value of those securities. And because most of the financial institutions use that as collateral for their borrowings uh, to finance their operations, um, we have this kind of uh, uh, effects where um, the lower value of those bonds creates uh, illiquidity events as uh, those institutions uh, are faced with margin calls, uh, which force them to sell more of those bonds. And it was kind of a wake-up call for central bankers. Uh, a lot of central bankers and the BIS commented uh, afterwards um, because it made them understand that okay, uh, we have to fight inflation by uh, tightening monetary policy. But the problem is that uh, by doing that, we risk uh, basically nuke our own bond markets um, on which all liquidity relies uh, in the current system. So they are kind of stuck uh, between a rock and a hard place uh, with the peril on inflation on the one side and risk of this kind of liquidation cascades rendering um, what is supposed to be the most liquid uh, market in the world totally illiquid uh, in a really short time frame. Yeah, it's the big problem with these markets. They're liquid until they're not. <laughs> when they're not, things start freaking out. And we saw this duration mismatch lead to a bunch of turmoil in our banking system here in the U.S. with uh, SVB, Signature Bank, particularly First Republic as well. Um, so this problem isn't just isolated to these pension plans, this use of treasuries, whether they be <clears throat> UK gilts or US treasury bonds as liquid assets on bank balance sheets or pension balance sheets works until it doesn't. Yeah, and it's, it's worth mentioning, it's not a, a UK problem. Uh, it's a global problem. It's just that uh, in the US, uh, following the SVB episode you mentioned, uh, basically, U.S. regulators have um, find a more um, like roundabout way to address this with the BTFP program. So basically, they told uh, all financial institutions in the U.S., uh, okay, um, so we know you are underwater because you are holding the securities that we basically nuked due to our uh, monetary tightening. So we will put in place this facility uh in which you can deposit those bonds and we will lend against it at collateral value, not at market value. So um, basically, 
um, it's it's a way to keep liquidity going uh, without by up um, the losses, uh, the national losses that the bank faced. And uh, since it has been enforced, um, the BTFP has not uh, decreased uh, in um, loans. And uh, yeah, one could make the argument that uh, there is no reason it would in the future because uh, the problem is ongoing and um, we are in this weird situation uh, where um, central bankers told us, yeah, we will um, uh, tighten monetary policy to try to stifle inflation. But at the same time, uh, we will give uh, liquidity against uh, uh, depreciating streets because um, we have to, to keep uh, the markets going. And so it's kind of uh, swatting the tightening effects uh, um, in to some extent. Yeah. It's a bit of a catch 22, if you will. And I, I mean, this just highlights one of the inherent risk of the fiat system run on debt. And again, using these debt instruments as liquidity providers or, um, uh, sort of liquid assets on your balance sheet. It's, this is one, of the big risks that exist out there. You're completely beholden to the whims of the central bankers at any given point in time and what they decide to do in regards to interest rate policy or the expansion uh, or tightening of their balance sheets. That's one of the risks that exists and makes it hard for capital allocators to put their money in yield-bearing instruments with some form of certainty. And then another emerging risk, it's probably more emerging and more recognized over the last two years particularly is this risk of confiscation and the weaponization of the monetary rails um, to simply just cut people off from accessing dollars or uh, liquid treasury assets. And so I I think that's another important risk to highlight here and describe um, in the context of purveying the field and trying to figure out where the safest places to put your money are. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, a good thing. Um, one thing we, we didn't address uh, here is the over-indebtedness of our governments. And mm-hmm. so um, the problem with that is that uh, in order to pay back those debts, uh, you don't have uh, uh, many solutions. Either you have like a big surge in uh, real growth, which, which can only happen uh, with a lot of productivity gains, let's, for example, say uh, tomorrow we have clean um, uh, nets producing energy fusion or stuff like that, but uh, it's really unlikely. You can also uh, inflate the debt away, uh, but uh, of course, once you let inflation run, uh, you risk uh, get, getting into hyperinflation and it's really difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, once you left it out. Um, and you can also use another expedient, which is called financial repression. And basically, it's financial jargon to say, um, we will rob um, people slowly uh, through maintaining bond yields below inflation. So basically maintaining um, negative real bond yields for a long period of time. And uh, the 
problem with that is that when you do that, you give a really important incentive to people to take their capital and invest it uh, elsewhere, not in government securities, but in a different monetary zone or in different asset classes. So usually, um, historically speaking, when we had financial regression, we also had capital controls. And uh, in this perspective, um, if I'm a regulator or a treasury official, it would make sense for me to limit what you can do with your capital and to try to lean on financial institutions to force them to buy as much government securities as they can and to um, try to lean uh, politically or geopolitically uh, on my allies to buy uh, my, my government securities and stuff like that. Um, and so this combined with the fact that um, servicing uh, those debts uh, uh, became um, ever more difficult uh, with rate hikes because um, it raises the interest expense on the outstanding stock of debt. Um, you have a compelling uh, a case for governments um, uh, seizing private wealth just to bail out their faltering regimes. And in some sense, uh, it's what we have witnessed um, uh, over the past two years, and I would argue even more, um, first in a more geopolitical context with um, the seizure of Russian assets by uh, European member states, Switzerland, and the US, uh, which is basically a default on your debt. Um, also, you had um, a lot of uh, hints uh, about uh, regulators uh, being keen on uh, severing some uh, crypto on ramps, uh, maybe to uh, avoid what I just described uh, um, in terms of capital flight. Uh, from the domestic markets to uh, elsewhere in the context of financial repression. Uh, that was uh, through Operation uh, Choke Point 2.0, a subject um, that has been um, masterfully explained by um, Doomberg and also Nick Carter um, earlier this year. So basically it was... Um, the FDIC telling to uh, the different bank uh, uh, that were um, in turmoil uh, at, uh, during Mar the March-April uh, episodes that uh, they would serve as an example because they were uh, banking a lot of uh, crypto startups and individuals and that basically the FDIC doesn't like that. Um, you also have um, Iran and other countries being kicked out of SWIFT um, also, during the, the COVID pandemics, you had uh, global dollar shortages and you had a lot of people in the government um, talking about uh, basically weaponizing um, uh, Fed swap lines, that is uh, lending facilities to other sovereign states for um, their short-term uh, dollar funding uh, requirements. So, um, in effect, for example, um, saying to Russia and China, we won't uh, allow you to have access to those uh, swap lines. But, uh, for example, Denmark or France is okay because um, it's our allies. And so uh, for capital allocators around the world, it means that they have to manage another risk that was 
quite uh, uh, absent from the landscape over the past four decades, which is uh, government seizure and uh, more broadly uh, financial repression, which in a really broad way can be described as um, you will have less liberty to decide where you will put your money uh, if it stays uh, onshore in regulated uh, vehicles. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a great example of this today with the announcement of Chase Bank uh, preventing their customers in the United Kingdom from accessing uh, Bitcoin exchanges, crypto exchanges more broadly. I'm not sure if you saw that, but... No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, so it's only in the UK. There's a lot of screenshots going around. Everybody's trying to say that Chase is um, banning all of their customers from accessing Bitcoin and crypto exchanges, but it seems like it's isolated to the UK. And I imagine that's stemming from some UK regulation that is just making its way through the market. But again, acutely highlights what you just described, which is this, this push for financial repression and access to this network that if it does succeed, um, if it continues to succeed, will um, prove to be a bit of a thorn in the side of the ass of the people that, that want to c- contain and retain control of the monetary and financial system. Um, so yeah, the, the and fight is here. You could, you could also extend uh, the reasoning with um, stablecoin providers because issuers, because um, if uh, I am in the situation of the US Treasury right now, um, I could also decide to uh, strike a bargain with the USDC and USDT of this world and say to them, um, okay, um, I don't like your products, but um, you are quite helpful to me because you buy that so much uh, of my debts. So I don't want to um, basically shut you down and all these debts to hit the market at the same time. But um, I will uh, define uh, how you can operate. Maybe I will ask you to uh, censor some addresses or to collaborate uh, with uh, different agencies um, uh, to fight against different risks and yada, yada, yada. Um, But in exchange, um, you will um, uh, pledge to only buy um, uh, U.S. treasuries and even buy the maturity I tell you to buy. And this will give a regulatory framework. Maybe a lot of people in crypto will cheer about that, saying, yeah, stable coins are recognized as, as something legitimate. Um, whereas um, it also um, helps um, the government sustain its debt because uh, it's a um, huge marginal buyer of treasuries. Yeah, it's a, a demand driver. And it's really interesting because Tether particularly is probably one of the most profitable companies on the planet right now when you consider the, the size of the company, its burn rate, and how much money it's printing just by holding treasuries uh, on its balance sheet to to uh, to provide this the stable coin in tether yeah and i mean and, in, it, in a high rate environment it's the deal of the century it's like you can use the capital of your customers to earn yield on it 
at the rate of 5% per annum. Yeah, and they're just rolling that into Bitcoin or a good portion of that into Bitcoin. That scenario, the potential scenario that you just laid out has me thinking my mind, like, does Tether have the super position where, yes, they are one of the biggest or a large driver of demand for these treasuries to hold on their balance sheet to ensure that they have uh, one-to-one stability with Tether at the end of the day, but they're using that to roll into the sovereign currency and Bitcoin that they also hold on their balance sheet. And if the government were to come to them and say, Hey, we're going to let you do this, but you have to censor these transactions. It's um, a really interesting scenario because I could see Tether bending the knee to that, but also continuing to transition their profits into Bitcoin and creating this somewhat superposition where um, they sort of weaponize the government to accumulate a bunch of Bitcoin and help aid the transition to a Bitcoin standard at the same time. There's not really a question there. It's just something that I think about because I, I do think the meme around stable coins and the fact that they are a overwhelming majority of the, the volume on these crypto networks and the individuals and people who think that this is the killer app of crypto um, are being a bit naive uh, considering what you just explained, which is if the government knocks on your door and says, hey, you have to do this, that, and the other thing, particularly around censorship of particular users, it sort of defeats the purpose of why Bitcoin exists in the first place and why people LARP about decentralized cryptocurrencies existing, being separate from the state. If you have these stable coins that are heavily dependent on fiat architecture and systems that, that are centralized points of failure. Um, it's all for naught at the end of the day. Yeah. One last thing is that um, Tether guys were less naive than their competitors, I think. So they structured in a way where they rely less on um, the US banking system. Um, whereas I think uh, the low-hanging fruit for what I described is more like USDC, mm-hmm. which uh, decided to take the uh, regulated approach in the US. Um, I will um, basically uh, be nice with the regulators and they will help me uh, um, uh, have a, a flourishing business. Um, but they could also find out that uh, the bigger problem for the government is uh, solvability, solvency, excuse me. And so that um, they would. Uh, uh, basically be leaned on by the government to buy more treasuries, whereas uh, harder to lean on Tether um, due to their structure, um, although it's not impossible at all. Completely agree. And USDC seems pretty keen on bending the knee and trying to appease the government to the best of their abilities and say, hey, we want to be the regulated stablecoin. We'll do whatever you ask. We just want to make sure that we're getting that flow and the fees that come from that flow, which uh, is not the the approach I would take or one I think's an overall benefit for humanity in the long run. But that's what Jeremy Allaire and uh, Circle have decided to do. Um, but I think we've done an incredible job of laying out the problem right now, uh, whether you're an individual or a company, uh, you want the ability to put your money in yield-bearing instruments 
that will that will allow you to increase the um, the size of your balance sheet at relatively low risk. Um, however, we live in this environment where governments are severely over indebted, uh, increasing the amount of debt that they have, and then on top of that, getting increasingly Orwellian and using their ability to censor and prevent people from interacting with each other uh, to dictate what happens throughout the financial system that they control. And so enter Bitcoin and attempting to replicate the yield that exists in these money market funds and other instruments, um, but then also provide the added benefit of uh, being a non-sovereign currency that doesn't have the ability to expand its monetary units or for a central authority to control what happens within the network. And so I think uh, in the paper, you do a really good job of laying out um, sort of the primitives of these types of products uh, that have been built or not, not necessarily even built, just certain um, functionalities of the industry, whether it be on BitMEX, that have been leveraged to create sort of these synthetic uh, money market funds um, and how we can actually institutionalize that or not even institutionalize it, just make it more legitimate and productize it more moving forward. So jumping into how Bitcoin fixes this problem, how people have attempted to do it, uh, in the past and how it may look in the future. Yeah. So, um, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, um, Bitcoin is, uh, an exceptional, um, place to, for your long-term savings because it's monetary policy somewhat guarantees that you will get a real positive return in the long run, but, uh, its monetary policy is also the thing that makes it so volatile. Something cannot grow that much without um, showcasing that much volatility uh, in the short term. And so um, you can still benefit uh, from Bitcoin, even if you are a no-coiner, for example, and you don't want uh, to hold Bitcoin in the long term, just um, by understanding that uh, such appreciation and volatility is your friend. And what I mean by that is that um, using derivatives on Bitcoin um, and more specifically perpetual swaps, uh, which has been invented by BitMEX in 2016, uh, you can uh, have a cash and carry arrangement whereby um, you will short the dollar value of your Bitcoin holdings um, which gives you a stable uh, um, uh, balance in dollar, uh, whatever the, the price of Bitcoin does. Because um, if the price of Bitcoin, for example, rises, then uh, the value of your shorts uh, will uh, plummet, but um, your collateral in Bitcoin will appreciate uh, proportionately. Um, conversely, if uh, the price of Bitcoin drops, uh, your shorts will thwart the depreciation of your collateral. And the interesting thing um, about uh, this market is that um, basically Bitcoin returns have been uh, so off the charts for um, the past seven years that um, the future prices almost always trade uh, higher than the spot prices. And this means that by shorting um, Bitcoin that you held at the same time, uh, you get a stable dollar value plus um, some 
form of yields, uh, what is called a premium through a basis trade. So maybe I should explain uh, um, in more depth what uh, perpetual swaps are. So usually uh, when you have a spot market and a future market on top of this, you will have uh, different contracts that uh, have different expiry dates. So a future contract basically is just a contract that say, um, I will have uh, the ability, uh, I will be, excuse me, I, I will be shipped this commodity, this asset uh, uh, in the future at a certain date. Um, and I buy it now to have the underlying in the future. And um, Bitcoin being the first asset in history that trades around the clock, the guy at BitMEX uh, decided to um, change uh, the way a con uh, future contracts are structured to create a novel instrument called perpetual swaps. And a perpetual swap is basically a future contract without an expiry date. Um, you can maintain the position uh, uh, for uh, as long as you like. And every eight hours, um, you will have um, a peer-to-peer -peer payment between long and short, reflecting the spread between uh, the futures and the spot prices, which uh, mechanically will... Uh, Correct, um, annihilate the spreads, the spreads on uh, between both markets, and this means that, for example, when the uh, perpetuals are trading higher than the spots, uh, which is uh, the case most of the time, uh, by being short uh, uh, Bitcoin, um, you will get uh, um, um, a positive payment, uh, a small payment every eight hours, uh, almost consistently. Uh, conversely, if you are long Bitcoin, you will pay uh, basically to borrow uh, uh, and, ha and gain leverage on your Bitcoin. And um, in most markets, uh, um, spot prices and future prices tend to fluctuate with spot prices sometimes uh, uh, below uh, uh, future prices and future prices sometimes below spot prices. Uh, with Bitcoin, what the article I wrote for Axiom shows is that at least 72% of the time uh, it's in contango, meaning that uh, perpetual prices are higher than spot prices. And I tried to um, outline the performance of such trades. So let's say, for example, that you would have put um, um, $100 in uh, this trade um, since Perpetual uh, have been launched uh, in 2016, it would have yielded um, something like 140% uh, over this period. Uh, and remember, this is with a stable dollar balance. So it's totally comparable to um, um, a government securities or something like that. Uh, because um, it's stable in dollars, uh, you don't really bear any risk, um, uh, except from uh, the counterparty risk with the exchange, which we will um, talk more about later. And um, you would get um, so something like 20% annualized, which is um, completely off the charts uh, um, compared to um, 
traditional benchmarks, so money market funds, uh, long-dated treasuries, and stuff like that. Um, another thing I try to calculate is uh, what would happen if uh, an individual decided um, uh, like randomly at any point in time to uh, use this trade as a cash balance. So I don't want exposure to Bitcoin anymore. Uh, I will short the value of my Bitcoin uh, um, at uh, um, a random time. So I calculated the returns of um, all possible portfolio for this trade. That is uh, any entry point and any exit point. Like you don't try to actively uh, maximize the value you would get. You, you are just like looking for stability uh, at any given moment. And if we look at the distribution of these returns, um, we also look that we also see that uh, basically uh, any position held um, um, over the current cycle, so since the last halving, uh, would have uh, maintained a stable dollar value and uh, would have yielded uh, on average something like 10% with really low volatility, which is uh, by comparison way better than um, any uh, return you would get from a money market fund or a deposit facility at a bank or uh, through Fed fund rates or any other um, benchmark that you can think of. Yeah, it's pretty stunning when you look at the numbers, which I'm doing now, it's, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the chart you have in the paper, and then the sharp ratio of three point seven nine, which is pretty pretty astounding when when you and, benchmark it against every other thing yeah. that exists in the fiat world. And another thing uh, um, I, I did that I didn't mention in the piece um, is that. Uh, this sharp ratio is more or less in line with um, uh, the sharp ratio of the S&P 500 over the same time span, um, which somehow demonstrates that um, it's, it looks legitimate. Like if it were uh, too high, um, as you would get with something like uh, UST and Luna or stuff like that, um, you should be worried because um, it could indicate that um, the yield that you get is really not sustainable. Whereas in this case, uh, the yield you get is just demand for traders that want to leverage on Bitcoin because um, it has been a profitable trade, uh, even though a lot of people uh, uh, lost their, their shots trying doing that. And so... Uh, what we are describing, because I, I know it can sound like a crypto defi uh, perpetual motion machine, but uh, in some sense, it's a really healthy kind of yield because it's just um, someone buying your exposure on Bitcoin. Um, it, it, it's not uh, like you lend some money to somebody else. It's not that you count on somebody generating some returns uh, so that you would get a, a share of it. It's just as long as there are people that want to be long Bitcoin and there are more people that want to be long Bitcoin than short Bitcoin, you will find people that want buy this volatility from you and then uh, you would have this arrangement where you could get a stable dollar uh, balance with a yield on top of that. 
Yeah, and it really makes sense. I mean, to take a step back and to try to break, break this down in layman's terms, the fundamental thesis behind the trade is that there are many people out there who think that we're still in the early phases of Bitcoin's monetization. And so they want long exposure to that and sometimes leveraged long exposure to that. And there's another subset of the market that wants to lock in some stable value of the Bitcoin that they hold. And so another way to express or explain this trade is the people that want to lock in the stable value are lending out to the people that want to go levered long that are making what I would argue is a smart bet that Bitcoin's going to continue monetizing and accruing in value um, and for providing the service of lending their exposure to these people who are going long, they're getting a yield in return as people make money on that long trade. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. You can also uh, look at this through the lens of monetary policy. Um, like since the eighties and uh, the introduction of uh, floating exchange rates, um, most uh, money managers um, are always looking for um, basically a positive cash and carry by looking at foreign bond markets. And with uh, different countries having different monetary policies, um, um, there is always there are always uh, bond markets that have higher real rates than others. So let's say, for example, I'm um, a Japanese pension manager, and uh, currently I can get like 5.5% by holding U.S. Treasuries, um, and something like 0.5% by holding JGBs, Japanese government bonds. So what I would do is that I would buy uh, U.S. Treasuries and I would hedge my currency risk uh, and I would still get something like maybe 2 or 3% uh, once I've accounted for the costs of hedging. And I have to hedge because my liabilities are to uh, Japanese uh, nationals, so they want their pension paid in Japanese yen. So if there is... For example, tremendous uh, depreciation of the dollars against the yen, uh, I could be in some trouble if I don't hedge. Um, and if you look at Bitcoin as a new continent of sorts, a new monetary zone, it has the best of uh, all monetary policy because you don't have central planners, uh, it have um, uh, scheduled issuance, uh, and you know what the supply will be at any point in time. And so it's only logical that it commands real rates higher than any competitors. And so in the same manner than um, money managers have uh, been used to um, put their capital in one monetary zone or the other, um, depending on which has the sounder monetary policy. What I'm forecasting is that now they will put it in the Bitcoin monetary zone. And as they did in the past, they will edge, they will edge their currency risk. That is, they will edge against the volatility of Bitcoin. And they would be better served doing that because the, the yield they would get is higher than any yields they would get on um, uh, foreign bond markets. Yeah, I know we touched on it briefly because BitMEX sort of figured this out, but I think it's important to really dig in and highlight the benefit that the fact that Bitcoin trades 24-7, 365 and the liquidity profile that those 
perpetually open markets to use a pun here um it provides to uh, individuals businesses sovereigns alike like it's almost going to be impossible to resist getting exposure to this type of product due to that liquidity profile profile provided by the fact that bitcoin is just always running yeah yeah that's uh, so an, uh, a really important point is that uh, as we mentioned before like um uh, futures contracts uh, usually have an expiry date and also like if i buy a hedge um uh, to shield myself against volatility of a foreign currency um this uh, um edge has uh, an expiration too and so um i constantly need to manage my position that is uh, when a contract expires, I, I will have to buy another contract. And unfortunately for the manager, um, these contracts can trade at different premiums depending on uh, what the market thinks they, they are worth. Uh, another problem with that is that because you have a lot of different contracts trading in parallel, it fragments liquidity. Um, whereas with the perpetual markets, what we can uh, observe um, um, in the data is that most of uh, the capital going into uh, Bitcoin futures go into perpetuals. And so it basically acts as a shelling point for people that want uh, a future exposure on Bitcoin. And so it gathers uh, um, capital and liquidity um, more efficiently than a traditional um, uh, futures contract or even traditional financial markets uh, um, in the TradFi world. And with the added benefits that um, you can peg and unpeg your Bitcoin uh, basically whenever you want. Um, in the piece, I use the example of um, the, the failure of SVB uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, Marty. Um, so imagine, for example, uh, um, you, you, you learn that the bank is, um, is, is failing uh, when the market is closed uh, and, it's when, and it's Friday and it won't open before Monday. Um, if you are in the traditional financial world, uh, you cannot take any position. You cannot edge yourself until Monday. And when Monday's market open, it will be a rush because uh, everybody will do the same thing. So you will uh, you will pay uh, a, a premium uh, because you will rush into the same trade as anyone um, and as everybody. And uh, with Bitcoin is totally different because uh, you could, for example, uh, learn uh, of the news and decide to unpack your Bitcoin uh, at once and um, basically making a directional bet on the fact that Bitcoin will benefit uh, from this event and pump through the turmoil in the banking system and um, decide to repeg your Bitcoin uh, an hour afterwards uh, uh, if you want. And so because uh, Bitcoin settles around the clock and because um, it can be traded at many venues and it don't have a market authority that decides uh, when trading begins and when it stops and what is the current price and stuff like that, you have this kind of flexibility where you can be shielded uh, against um, a lot of uh, risks uh, that you cannot uh, acquire um, insurance against uh, through traditional uh, channels. Yeah, 
And so, like, if you see a run on the bank or you believe there's going to be one, you can unpeg that trade benefit from the value appreciation of Bitcoin in reaction to some stress in that market. And then when you want to get back to stable value, just repeg, do it <laughs> instantly. Yeah. And also from a really practical standpoint, uh, you, you can pay people on Sunday, which you, you cannot do through the banking system. If, for example, um, you, you send me a bill and um, you want to be paid at once, I can just send you Bitcoin uh, on a Sunday morning and you will get it in about 10 minutes. And then you can decide to peg it uh, against the dollar as soon as you received it. And to all practical to all practical extents, uh, you just got uh, a dollar value on a Sunday when the bank is closed in 10 minutes uh, across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And now this is where things get really interesting because the perpetual swap trade that we've been describing was made famous on BitMEX. Uh, it's been replicated in other exchanges. Um, but to a certain extent, I mean, I think BitMEX is actually... Uh, an example of doing things the right way. They create a whole circular Bitcoin economy and Bitcoin leverage trading desk. <clears throat> now you couldn't put dollars in. There's no dollar accounts. And they leverage multi-sig, multi-jurisdictional, multi-sig, most importantly, to ensure that they were able to facilitate trades 24-7, 365. And even when a couple of their co-founders were, were in prison, it, it proved to be very hard for the authorities that be to prevent BitMEX from, from actually providing the services that they, they provide, which is very good to see. Um, but still, even in that setup, there are some single points of failure and it's definitely risky uh, in some regards and in, in terms of where pressure can be applied. Um, but it is certainly a, a, an improvement on the incumbent system, but we can still move further down the spectrum of ensuring that these types of products are not only uh, yield bearing, but are as Caesar resistant, seizure resistant as possible. Uh, and this is by leveraging some of Bitcoin's native properties that can allow you to create these types of products without a BitMEX being involved at all. Yeah. One risk that we left out in the current discussion is counterparty risk. Because um, if I were to peg uh, my Bitcoin uh, in such a fashion, for example, um, at FTX uh, in uh, October 2022, uh, I would have nothing left. And so you are always uh, assuming a counterparty risk because uh, to enter such trade, you have to deposit margin at an exchange. Um, and there is no way around that. Like, uh, they won't let you short Bitcoin unless you have collateral. But um, you can uh, have the same kind of arrangement where um, you will uh, short or long Bitcoin directly through um, uh, discrete log contracts, which are... Um, basically an equivalent of uh, what is usually termed smart contract on DeFi platforms, but um, that can be um, um, done on Bitcoin, either on Lightning or on the main chain. So um, to, to explain rapidly what 
the dis uh, discrete log contract is um, basically um, it's um, an off-chain agreement between two parties um, that will um, define a payout contingent on some external events uh, um, and that is enforceable uh, unilaterally even if the other party doesn't uh, cooperate. So let's say, for example, that um, me and Marty bet on the outcome of the Super Bowl. Um, then we can um, exchange a pre-signed Bitcoin transaction where um, I will build a transaction that will spend some Bitcoin uh, to Marty and he will um, build a transaction that will spend some Bitcoin to me. If we agree on the bet, we will then fund uh, a multi-sig wallet with our wage, uh, with our, our stakes. And basically, the transaction uh, um, we built um, have this specificity that the signature that we used have been tweaked uh, using um, an external party public key, um, which is called an oracle. Basically, the oracle is just someone attesting to the outcome of the event. And he does not even have to know that we have made a bet or that even a bet, a bet has been made or what are the terms of this bet. And so uh, once the Super Bowl is finished, uh, this oracle will, will publish an attestation um, uh, saying who the winner is. And uh, either me or Marty can use um, this Oracle attestation to basically untwick the signature from the transaction we exchange, the off-chain pre-signed transaction I described, and we can use uh, unilaterally, the, the winning party can unilaterally uh, publish the, the correct transaction and get the Bitcoin payout. Even if the other party says, no, I don't want to pay, I disagree with the results, I don't think you won, and stuff like that. And so, in effect, uh, to get back to our discussion, this means that you can do future contracts on Bitcoin without um, um, abandoning custody of all your funds. You just have to construct a DLC that will reflect uh, the outcome of a future contract and there you go. You have uh, um, uh, in the the example that we gave, you can have like your Bitcoin on chain or in the Lightning channel, and be hedged so that um, the amounts of uh, Bitcoin you own will fluctuate with regards to the Bitcoin USD price without any counterparty risk. Um, and hence, um, to a practical extent, you will have a stable dollar uh, balance in Bitcoin uh, directly uh, in a lightning channel or on the main chain without uh, abandoning custody of your Bitcoin. Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful thing. It's insane to think that we can do this now in a completely non-custodial way. I mean, there are obviously still a couple of things that need to mature on the wallet side of things, on the Oracle side of things. I mean, you mentioned the Oracle thing. Many people view that as a point of failure or a single point of failure. Like what if the Oracle attests to a bad outcome and Bitcoiners have thought of this, you can use many Oracles and make sure that they're 
attestation is with a particular range. So if you don't want to depend on an individual oracle, you can expand the oracle options that are attesting to the outcome of particular events. Um, and so I, I guess another really important hurdle to overcome, which we should definitely talk about is uh, in the context of non-custodial DLCs, how do you envision liquidity for these types of markets to develop? Is it going to be hard? Is it an impossible problem to solve? Um, what does like, how can DLCs provide a similar experience to this type of strategy employed on something like a BitMEX where people would argue that the relative centralization of a BitMEX and their ability to create a market and maintain a market may uh, make it harder for DLCs to achieve the same level of success. Yeah. So um, it's a really good point. When um, you have this kind of uh, non-custodial uh, arrangements, by definition, uh, you will have to post enough collateral uh, within the funding transaction to cover all the outcomes of the contract. And this means capital inefficiency, because as you mentioned, um, when you do the same things through a centralized exchange, Usually, centralized exchanges um, uh, keep a capital buffer in line with the net positioning of um, uh, the participants, meaning that they don't have to keep one Bitcoin uh, of uh, reserves for one uh, Bitcoin worth of contracts. Uh, because if, for example, I'm long one Bitcoin, you are short one Bitcoin, in net, uh, um, they are neutral. And uh, in DLCs, uh, it cannot work that way because as I mentioned, you have to have pledged the Bitcoin you might lose in advance. Uh, it's the price you have to pay for trustlessness. And so this um, of course could hinder the trading experience and the UX for people using that. Because if for example, I want to um, um, have uh, many DLCs in parallel, I have to lock uh, Bitcoins in many channels or in uh, many UTXOs uh, um, uh, at the same time. And I cannot uh, reuse collateral uh, from one DLC to another. And especially if you want, if you want to roll your position, uh, which is kind of needed to achieve what uh, we described in terms of uh, getting a, a stable balance uh, um, uh, in dollars on Bitcoin, um, you would have to close um, your DLC, get back your collateral, and then uh, open a new DLC. And of course, uh, with that comes costs, uh, because, uh, for example, uh, between the time lag, um, between the closure and the opening of the new DLC, um, you won't be edged anymore. So um, you will have an exposure on the market, which is a risk uh, and that entails a cost. Uh, also, uh, closing a DLC means publishing an on-chain transaction and opening a fresh DLC also means opening a new transaction. So it's, it, it, it comes at a cost. And especially uh, in some fees environments, uh, it could be a non-negligible cost. And if what you want is just have a stable uh, uh, balance in dollar, like uh, let's imagine you are like a, a, a total no-coiner, you just use some kind of fintech app 
um, to have this kind of sovereign bank accounts that gives you um, a, an interesting yield. Um, the user experience you want is just like uh, always a stable value. Uh, custody over my funds, and uh, I don't want to understand the complexity about this. And so, um, for a moment, uh, if anyone wants uh, to uh, do a transaction on the main chain, or um, if a lot of DGNs are minting ordinals and stuff like that, as we have witnessed uh, um, recently, um, then you will be forced to pay a high fee because uh, you don't want to remain unpegged for too long because um, Bitcoin volatility could uh, um, uh, diminish your, your capital value. And um, it's it's a, a kind of a big problem, especially in the sense that um, you can imagine that a lot of people would want to do this, this thing when Bitcoin plummets. And so as um, many people rush to and uh, hike the fee on their transaction to have um, uh, their transaction in the next block, uh, you could be forced to pay high fee to do that. That being said, uh, given um, the, the analysis uh, I've laid out in the piece regarding uh, the returns of such a trade, um, I don't think that rolling costs uh, would be such a problem. Um, but um, it's it means that um, companies that try to package uh, this trade into a product um, would have to find um, solutions uh, to make the user experience as seamless as possible. Um, to get back on your exact questions, I, I don't really uh, think that um, such uh, derivatives markets could really um, be competitive um, compared to um, derivatives markets on centralized exchanges because uh, the trading experience like uh, having that uh, order book depth, uh, being able to trade uh, um, that uh, uh, with uh, that many counterparty and having swift liquidity and stuff like that um, would be Kind of really, it would be really difficult to replicate in uh, a decentralized marketplace, uh, and um, it's kind of an open problem uh, uh, at the moment. Like we don't really know how to build a purely decentralized marketplace for um, DLC derivatives uh, on Bitcoin, um, because I, 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 in essence, an order book is a centralized stuff. Uh, it's just like aggregating all the trades in the same place. Uh, um, and so we, we don't have um, uh, that good a solution uh, uh, at the moment. But um, uh, giving a an, an hint uh, 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 at what it could look like, um, which uh, I should uh, uh, say is not a design that I've seen uh, uh, as of now, um, could be something like what Tether currently does. So as we mentioned before, like with Tether, you send them like dollars and whatever, and they give you um, a new token and they use um, the, the fiat to buy um, treasury securities. 
and they get the they get the yield and you get uh, um, um, a stable coin so a better dollar one could say and so you're happy they're happy and um, now it's it's it means uh, in the right environment we are in that as you mentioned it's one of the the most profitable company in the world um, you could do the same thing with DLCs like for example you could uh, create a Bitcoin wallet. Um, let's say that you want to peg your Bitcoin to the dollar. I will take um, uh, um, the opposite side of the trade um, and tie collateral in a DLC with you. And then I will edge my exposure through a centralized exchange. And you won't get any yield. You will just have um, the benefit of having a stable dollar balance, which is uh, uh, already kind of nice. And I think it's something that... With some, it's a product that would have a good market fit. And uh, on my side, as uh, um, as um, the company offering the, the wallets, um, I basically would have to um, lock uh, collateral on um, uh, the DLC and also lock some collateral uh, on the exchange where I edge. But the benefit for me is that I get your positive yield. And so I used uh, basically external capital that is seeking for um, censorship-resistant dollar natively on Bitcoin um, to um, uh, basically generate cash flow for my business and grow and have better infrastructure, better marketing and stuff like that. That's a way uh, uh, to solve this problem. And there are many more. It's more a matter of um, what kind of market segment you want to address because, of course, um, uh, you can use DLCs to uh, offer like a kind of uh, uh, a new form of wallet um, uh, to Bitcoin plebs. Uh, it's what uh, 1010 for example, is doing. Um, and uh, I'm on their beta. It, it kind of works. It's still buggy and stuff, of course. Um, but um, if you look, for example, to uh, offer um, a kind of money market fund for hedge funds or other financial institutions, um, you will hardly do that through Lightning and um, you would have to, to package the product differently to um, better fit, better cater to the, the, the needs of those kind of users. Um, and so... I expect that uh, in the long run, you will have different uh, products catering to different needs for different market segments. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very obvious that there's something here and we're definitely in the nascent stages of this market developing. I mean, you mentioned 1010 There's Atomic Finance out there on the Lightning Network. We have, I mean, 1010 building on Lightning. We have Ellen Markets, Blink BTC. You can begin to see if you squint hard enough the the formation of uh, this particular vertical within the Bitcoin financial products landscape beginning to uh, develop a fundamental base. And if you squint even harder, you can see like, yes, it may be buggy. It's a little bit clunky in some areas. UX needs improvement, but there's definitely something there that can be improved upon. And it isn't hard to imagine that over the next 5, 10, 20 years that the people dedicated to this particular problem will come up with a solution that is at parity with some of the more centralized solutions that exist today. It's just going to take time. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is also that all the the, the companies that you mentioned uh, are developing kind of different products. Like Atomic Finance, they leverage DLC to offer options. Um, Tenten One, they focus on um, futures and um, dollar stable balance. Um, Bling BTC, which was formerly uh, Bitcoin Beach Wallet, um, is a more centralized design, so it doesn't use DLCs. It uses it uses um, um, exchange APIs um, to place the trades, and so it's a custodial wallet and um, you transfer uh, custody over your Bitcoin when you use it. Uh, but by definition, it also means that it's cheaper, easier to build, less expensive and stuff like that. Um, and um, LN Markets, they are currently building an OTC trading desk for that. Um, because as they understand uh, uh, what I just explained, that it's kind of difficult to build a market on that from scratch because um, you you, ha- you will have you, you will have a hard time finding like liquidity providers, market makers, and building the whole market infrastructure. So they decided to start by um, basically building an, an OTC desk, which is just a meeting point for uh, people uh, wanting to match together because they want to do opposite trades. So um, in this fashion, this could be used, for example by miners uh, that want to edge their exposure uh, uh, to Bitcoin. It could be also used by um, power and co- power companies that want to u- to edge their exposure to miners um, because they provide electricity upfront to miners that can uh, get bankrupt really fast uh, when uh, either the hash rates or uh, Bitcoin's uh, volatility explodes or both, uh, by the way. And um, so there is lag between uh, the moment they supply electricity and the moment they are paid. You could imagine some uh, scheme um, through which uh, the miner would pay um, the the power company over lightning um, uh, at cost basis, uh, um, sort of a flow of what they consume. And the power company could use uh, this kind of OTC desk to edge the value over their Bitcoin they will be matched against uh, a hedge fund, for example, that want to make a directional bets on uh, Bitcoin with a small leverage. And so the, the company in the middle here, Ellen Markets, would only um, supply like uh, technical services to do that, such as like oracles, uh, backup of transactions, so that uh, you'll be sure that even if your nodes crash or something like that, you could still... Uh, executes the contract uh, when you win and stuff like that. And yeah, so it's it's an exciting uh, space. Um, it's really early, I would say. Like, I don't expect uh, what I described to um, uh, happen uh, tomorrow. But um, for example, I had a conversation with uh, a big uh, ETF provider, a big asset manager, um, that is already uh, looking at that um, and is interested to propose that as uh, an ETF, as a security, um, it could be quite challenging on the legal front. Um, and I don't think the technology and the, the decentralized market for bit- derivatives on Bitcoin is mature enough. But 
let's fantasize about that. Um, uh, if you you bring such product to market, um, given the the macro backdrop that we we described, uh, I think it would garner a lot of attention and uh, it would attract a lot of liquidity because. It would be a legal security that anyone can trade, and um, it would be a good place to to uh, hold synthetic dollars and get a yield for it. Yeah, which gets to the conclusion of your piece and the bullish aspects of this. Uh, these money market funds being a sly roundabout way to incite hyper Bitcoinization. Um, if the products do mature, they do drive a lot of demand and they do pull a lot of Bitcoin off the market. Like this could, this could really be some jet fuel for the price of Bitcoin at the end of the day. And then it becomes like a self-perpetuating cycle because the product exists. (laughs) People want to go lever long even more and it becomes more of a profitable trade at least until we reach a point of monetization where it's sufficient. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, a tantalizing proposition because um, uh, what I try to explain in the piece is that um, by definition, our financial system is a, is geared towards a low time preference, uh, uh, high time preference finance. And so most of the capital that is circulating in the financial system is short-term capital um, that uh, is in search for a short-term yield. And it's also why money market funds uh, are all the rage right now. But it's also uh, why um, this kind of product could attract a lot of capital to Bitcoin. Because um, when when you think about it, uh, as we mentioned, it's, it's inflation resistance, it's seizure resistance. You don't have counterparty risk. Um, you can access it from anywhere on the planet. Uh, it can be marketed uh, as not a Bitcoin product. It's more like uh, um, here are the properties of this, and um, um, it's just you do that, or uh, you have um, you are underperforming uh, your competitors as a money manager. So uh, it's not a good proposition to 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 avoid uh, uh, that, um, and also. Um, y- y- you can, like, you can imagine for, for now, like derivative markets on Bitcoin are not uh, have not enough depth and liquidity to uh, attract that much capital. But as Bitcoin grows and as it monetizes further, um, uh, what we can expect is the derivatives markets growing in tandem. And so um, it could um, kind of fuel a virtuous cycle whereby um, this attracts more capital. This forces people to enter this trade to buy Bitcoin spots, uh, then short it. And it makes uh, both the spots and the derivatives market more liquid and it uh, make it more uh, deep. And um, this uh, compels like uh, traders to leverage on Bitcoin because uh, it helps Bitcoin appreciate um, and thus making the market even more 
um, uh, in Contango because a lot of people buy uh, um, leverage on Bitcoin, so it's right. It increases the yield you would get on your stable balances, which further incentivize people to access uh, the stable Sats trade, and so on and so on and so on. And so it's why I talked about a sly roundabout way because. Um, over the last cycle, we have been focused on um, this kind of store value narrative whereby like, people will adopt uh, Bitcoin as a long-term saving instrument. But the reality of it is that um, like, long-term savings are a really, really, really small part of uh, the financial capital out there. And um, like the lion's share of the capital is like short-term capital sinking, like uh, liquidity and uh, de-risk uh, vehicle with bearing a, a yield. And so once we have some products that are mature enough uh, uh, on Bitcoin to do that, uh, yeah, it could open the floodgates and uh, tremendously helps. Uh, first, legitimizing Bitcoin as uh, uh, the bedrock of a new financial system, because uh, due to the incentives in the tri-fi world, uh, as I try to argue in the piece, uh, you could imagine uh, a, a lot of financial institutions adopting this just because uh, it's better yields and better properties than uh, the alternatives. And it will also uh, help grow Bitcoin's liquidity uh, faster than with uh, basic Bitcoin plebs uh, DCAing on Bitcoin, uh, which is good, uh, by the way. But um, it, we are—it's it, a different order of magnitude uh, we are talking about. Yes, completely agree. And to that point, in your mind, what is the bigger driver of this trade moving forward? Better UX and accessibility to the trade, or turmoil? in the TradFi world that forces capital allocators to seriously consider this and figure out a way to get into the trade despite the maturity of the products that exist? Oh, I, I think it's um, UX predominantly. Like, mm -hmm. um, once you have a well-capitalized enough company offering like a Bitcoin wallet with a good UX, um, that allows you to do that, um, I think it will spread fast um, and it will um, give ideas. Uh, and I think uh, in, the, in the medium term, um, it, it, I think it will grow with uh, like uh, stable dollar balances and just people like me that uh, don't want to 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 phone their bankers or just have to deal with a bank or financial institutions uh, for their daily lives that would rather use only Bitcoin, but that have this kind of, uh, I have to keep some cash on hand because um, I have my rent to pay, I have my utility bills to pay. And so uh, being fully exposed on Bitcoin volatility can be uh, a dangerous proposition. And... Uh, as uh, you have this kind of uh, uh, attraction, then you will garner more liquidity and more market debts, uh, and these instruments would um, uh, appear to be um, uh, de-risked uh, for outside observers. And then you can, I think, imagine 
more like financial institutions, maybe uh, on Bitcoin, like I can make the case, for example, for a DCA company, like, I don't know, like River Swan or, or stuff like that, just offering that kind of uh, um, uh, Bitcoin dollar account to their customers and uh, outsourcing the liquidity and then um, helping like um, institutional players uh, to access this trade uh, until the point where um, you get institutional wrappers for that, like stuff like ETFs that replicates that uh, by managing the underlying. And then, yeah, it's widely distributed, globally accessible, and uh, many financial institutions will have the mandate to, um, to invest in that. And yeah, that could change a lot of things. Of course, it will take years, uh, maybe um, uh, the whole decade, um, but uh, there is no worry. And um, as far as I can tell, the tech is working right now. Like it's more uh, the companies have to be built, the liquidity has to be built, the UX uh, has to be built, um, but uh, all the technical components are in place. Yeah, you're getting me all excited, Theo. This is uh, as somebody and, and another part, important part of these types of products materializing too. I imagine is more merchants and individuals and companies accepting Bitcoin as payment because I would go full into this trade uh, in a product that provides this service, especially if I'm able to get yield on it, if I were able to pay my rent in it, my utility bill in it, uh, pay my bill at the grocery store, there would be no reason to have a bank account. Um, so it's like, I don't even know if it's a chicken and egg problem, these things probably have to mature in parallel um, with each other. But yeah, I mean, you can see this side of the market with the stable value um, and a yield on that stable value maturing at the same time where more individuals and more companies become aware of how their native currencies are being debased and why they may want to accept Bitcoin as payment to prevent the debasement of, of their balance sheets over time. Um, yeah, I think those are two things that probably have to progress in parallel with each other to really throw fuel on the fire of this particular product. And I mean, just in my own life yesterday, I tweeted this out yesterday, but um, on the merchant side of things, already beginning to see it on uh, my side. I got a message from our primary care doctor. We do a private, uh, direct private care here in the United States where I pay monthly fee um, for my children and my wife uh, to go to the doctor whenever they want. And uh, she reached out to us yesterday and was like, hey, we're accepting Bitcoin. She, not just us, all the members of this direct private care company so like hey we're gonna accept bitcoin as payment so that's an example of like if i had this product and i'm able to pay for my uh, my doctor fee every month in it like it's a no-brainer yeah that's good to that's good to see uh, unfortunately here in france we are far from that we still have a <laughs> communist healthcare. um but um yeah i I can tell from personal experience, um, and even if you look, for example, at people using like USDT on Tron in Argentina, like uh, most of the people in uh, developing countries facing inflation, um, they just want to hold dollars on their phone. 
So as long as we are able to give an opportunity that has um, like better properties than the alternatives, which is the case because there is no issuer, so there is no counterparty risk, um, then it's just a matter of UX. They they don't have to to struggle with uh, what is a DLC, what is that, why, uh, just like a button, stabilize and stabilize and yeah. And uh, it works, and like um, we we can see it with the adoption of stablecoin. Uh, um, it's yeah, it's a use case for crypto. Uh, the problem is that there is an issuer in the middle of it. So let's get rid of that, and then I think um, it's the time where Bitcoin can uh, um, address uh, uh, to the masses. Uh, and they will adopt it even without knowing it. And the next step from that is like, oh, I have uh, this uh, button that I can stabilize, I, I can unstabilize. Um, let's imagine um, the bull market is brewing. Um, I can strongly imagine a lot of people um, deciding to adopt Bitcoin this way because... Um, they have the thing in their hands and um, they will have a better gateway to the assets and a better um, uh, UX. Um, and also in France, we have some merchants that uh, try to accept Bitcoin, um, but um, the like fiscal declaration of it and stuff like that is like, uh, uh, it's like really painful. Um, and um, so, yeah, I can totally see how it can help. It could help uh, merchants uh, at the margin adopting Bitcoin. Um, and you have to remember that it's not legal tender. Like it's stabilized against the dollar, but it's not a dollar. So um, it's, it helps, but um, I expect uh, it's, it will be a, a, a slow process uh even uh if uh it materializes uh even if we have wallets uh, soon um that support these functionalities uh because you, you you still have this problem that like um yeah merchants have to accept bitcoin even if they can uh, um uh, be paid uh, in a stable value in dollar and don't experience the volatility um it's still a difficult thing to, to wrap your head around and you still have a lot of regulatory uh, barriers to this kind of um, uh, experience uh, um, being uh, massively um, adopted. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it's forming. This is an incredible piece and I think it's going to start a lot of chatter in the space and hopefully stoke a lot of ideas on the product side of things for people to get building this. I mean, I think um, if people have these stabilized, unstabilized buttons and the UX is perfect and um, people at the institutional level, not even at the institutional level, just your average business that wants to um, put some of their cash on their balance sheet into a Bitcoin money market fund have the ability to do so. It could be massive for the market and just highlights the the possibilities that exist out there natively on Bitcoin and just uh, the dynamics that exist with this new monetary good with a fixed supply and no central issuer. Uh, it can actually 
provide better products for individuals in terms of uh, giving them the ability to save, not only save money, but um, get a yield on their money for providing the service of helping leverage longs make more Bitcoin. Um, beyond yeah, this, and oh, go ahead. Uh, also, I, I, I'm in the piece. I focus on the stable dollar use case because uh, to me, it's what uh, has the more value. But um, in the distant future, you could also like expect. Uh, different kinds of uh, DLC-based derivatives markets. Let's say I don't want uh, to 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 give custody of all my funds to anyone, but I want to be long oil, to be uh, short yuan, to be... Uh, as soon as uh, I find an oracle that can attest to the future price of those uh, markets, uh, of those assets, and that I find a counterparty for my trade, either through an app or through uh, an OTC desk, um, I can uh, collateralize a bet in Bitcoin um, to uh, wage a bet on those asset classes, um, which uh, could be of interest, uh, maybe more to traders, but um, could also have like practical interest for um, like traditional companies trying to edge their risks, like for example, uh, airlines trying to edge against uh, all the rising or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. The bold future, it's right at our fingertips, freaks. You just gotta go build it and make people aware of it, which I think this conversation, hopefully, I think it will help, uh, I know it will help many people. Um, so thank you for writing the piece and beyond this, what else interests you? What other research are you looking at? Or would you like to begin tackling beyond the idea of a Bitcoin money market fund? Um, I'm currently writing another piece. Uh, I don't know when it will be released. I think in a couple of months, um, it's quite different. Uh, it's, uh, more, um, towards, uh, like uh, financial understanding of the Bitcoin market, um, like uh, how it organizes, what drives it, uh, and uh, basically shattering um, a long history of false ideas about how market functions uh, coming from the fiat finance apparatus, uh, all this bullshit about uh, um, uh, the modern finance theory, efficient market hypothesis, the CAPM model and all this, all those stuff. Um, and there are alternatives um, to explain how uh, the order is, um, is, is made in markets. And um, the interesting thing is that we can apply this to Bitcoin and test those hypotheses against Bitcoin because it has so much volatility, even with 14 uh, years of price that statistically speaking, um, it's a better market to test ideas than uh, any other market, not mentioning the fact that uh, there is not a, um, a given price of Bitcoin. There are multiple prices, so it helps to have like uh, more signal and less noise. Um, and yeah, so testing those concepts and, uh, um, and explaining it, how yeah how the what are the dynamics of the bitcoin markets uh, don't get up your horses it won't be of any use to trade or stuff like that 
unless you maybe are a really, really sophisticated uh, hedge fund with a lot of uh, researchers and stuff like that. Um, but it's more like an intellectual endeavor to try to uh, have a better understanding of uh, yeah how financial markets work and uh, what's, uh, what we are witnessing with Bitcoin adoption and its relation to price and stuff like that. Fascinating. Well, I can't wait to read it when it comes out. I'm sure you've piqued the interest of everybody listening to this as well. Theo Mojanet freaks, up and coming research analyst in the Bitcoin space. I'm very happy that we uh, had the last hour and 40 plus minutes to dissect your latest piece. Uh, by the time this episode airs, it will be live. We'll obviously be linking it in the show notes um, for anybody that wants to read it. Highly recommend you dive in. Uh, this podcast is a good companion to the piece itself, but uh, I think you have to read the whole thing as well on top of this show. So Theo, thank you for joining us. Is there anything before we wrap up here that we maybe didn't touch or any words of wisdom that you'd like to leave the freaks before we end the show? No, I think it was uh, really complete. Um, maybe just, uh, yeah, um, thanking all the people that helped uh, uh, editing and uh, giving subject, su suggestions while I was writing the piece. Um, also thanking Axum uh, BTC to, for publishing it. Um, thanking you to invite me on the show. And yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you like the piece, um, uh, there is my contact on it. Don't hesitate to uh, send me an email. I'm currently looking for a position as a researcher. So if you think that this kind of research can uh, benefit your firm, yeah, uh, please contact me. Awesome. Theo, you go enjoy your night. And uh, thank you. Thank you for all. This is a great episode. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, Marty. Right. And I guess have a good afternoon. Good afternoon, yeah. We're getting into the mid-afternoon here, so I'm going to have a good mid-afternoon. Peace and love, freaks. Dickie!